Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. Turn to chapter 3. We are finishing the sermon series in Titus, chapter 3, verses 9 to the end of the book. Let's go to God in prayer before we hear his word read. Father, we desire that we would grow in health, spiritual health, that we would know a sound doctrine, healthy teaching, that we might have healthy living. And so we depend upon your Spirit's assistance this evening through your word. And so we ask that he would help us now. In Christ's name, amen. Titus 3, 9 through 15. Hear now the word of God. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Are you more a Korah or an Onesimus? Surely, you'd say, in Onesimus, surely that is what we would all want to say of ourselves. That we eschew being, you know, having the idea of being a Korah, being rebellious against God's ministers, God's elders, appointed men, and ultimately against God himself. But is it true? As he read just a bit ago this evening, we saw Korah leading a rebellion against Moses, again, against God himself. He divided the Old Testament church through his sinful challenge against God's chosen leader. He led a people, and his spirit-less guidance drove everyone into a pit of God's making. And in the case of Onesimus, as we'll see much later on, uh, in 2023, going through Philemon, He was the runaway slave of Philemon's, who had providentially met Paul. And in the course of his time with Paul, he was converted. He, who was formerly useless, became useful. Useful not only to Paul, but to Philemon as well, and then to the local church. Korah sought to divide the church, whereas Onesimus supported the ministry of the church. We all make a vow to support the worship and work of the church to the best of our ability. We heard those five vows this morning as we received one of, uh, as we received someone into church membership. We all make the vow also to pursue the peace and the purity of the church. 
These two vows go together. All needless division should be swallowed up and gone forever. Peace and purity should be pursued and supported by all that we do in love for God and one another. To promote the health of the church, God's people support one another in the church's ministry. And so as you ask yourself today, this week, if there is any bit of division in your heart, in your actions, it is useful to describe and to define here what division Paul is talking about. We read again in verse 9, but avoid foolish foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As Paul puts the finishing touches of his letter to Titus, he is warning of division. From one angle, divisions can be moronic matters. This word foolish here literally it comes from the word which means moron. It's moronic. Foolish things. The stuff that morons engage their time speaking about, thinking about. We can so easily divide the church by our foolish investigation. You know, Google does have a lot of answers. But there are some questions you just shouldn't ask her or investigate through Alexa's aid. I hope by saying her name, I don't set her off on any of your phones or if you have something, some device that would call upon her, but I recently discovered that when we say kind things to Alexa, like, Alexa, I love you, which has been uttered from my lips many times, she will express her gratitude, and she will let us know that our, quote, tree of kindness keeps growing. When I first heard this, I said, what is this tree of kindness? I need to know more. And so out of curiosity, I sought more from the one who said that my tree of kindness was growing. I got more information, and she directed me to a website at which I could buy some supposed tree of kindness. This was a a waste of my time, a waste of my energy. Sometimes curiosity kills not only the cat, but it chips away at the church as well. Moronic matters must be avoided Godless genealogies as well. For the church in Crete and that of Ephesus, genealogies were one area of intense investigation pursued by, again, morons. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.4, Do not allow the Ephesian Christians to be devoted to endless origin stories. And we need to be careful. Genealogies in themselves are not wrong. The Bible includes them. Perhaps includes more than we want to read. But they serve God's purpose of showing us sacred history, of pointing us to the Christ. Biblical genealogies have an end, a a literal end, first or or last uh, final name, but also a godly goal. Again, to advance God's redemptive story and to remind us of where he's coming from and, uh, and the people who are typifying and pointing to Christ. Endless genealogies, however, have no end. They have no first or or final name, or they produce foolish curiosity, and they lead the inquirer, as Calvin says, from labyrinth to labyrinth, from one maze to another. 
They're not helpful. And the false church of the Latter-day Saints has perfected this evil of endless genealogies. If you have done any kind of genealogical searches, you have, no, you have most likely used their resources. And I'm not saying that that means you, you need to avoid all genealogical searches, find out where you come from and all that. But fundamental to their system is genealogy. They have to have everyone baptized in order for them to have a possibility of being resurrected and live on a new earth. And how can we have everyone be baptized if we don't know who everyone is? People who have died, even. And so they have a whole baptism for the dead dependent upon genealogies. Hitler's been baptized, by the way. But that's a whole other thing. We must likewise, as Paul says here, avoid contentions that profit no one. Christless contentions. Paul plays the same note to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.23 when he says, you guys must avoid foolish controversies. He has in mind rivalries, envies, strife that cut away at gospel peace. The medieval scholastics mastered this Christless quest for certain answers on dubious debates when they asked the question, how many angels indeed can dance on a pin? Who cares? Okay, who ultimately cares? Now, Now, there is a philosophical question underlying that, of course, and that is the relationship between spirit and matter. They've engaged in that kind of debate without any regard for the Bible's testimony. It is really a pursuit that doesn't have Christ as its focus. And ultimately, these divisions, these dissensions are fruitless fights, especially those with heretics, as we'll see later on. They have no fruit. They are vain. They are empty. They are worthless. They do not draw us closer to knowing God. Paul speaks here in particular concerning disputes on the law of God. The word is used only one other time, again by Paul, when he speaks of the Mosaic law being set aside to make way for the new covenant. Why do the former commandments of Moses go away? Because, as he says, they are now weak and useless when they are seen in the light of the enduring law of God, when they are seen in the light of the better covenant, the new covenant with a better mediator. Once they were useful, but now they are not. And so no longer do we engage in endless disputes about legal ceremonies, dietary laws, and other similar matters, now that we are in the new covenant preached on Leviticus 12 this morning, as you know, and Christians really don't have debates about purification laws and childbirth, and that's because Christ has come and has fulfilled that part. We don't need to be engaged in fruitless fights. It is godly to search, investigate, Ask, seek, and knock, but only where there is sure to be profit and worth, spiritual benefit. Too often our problem is not, well, what does the Bible say? Though at times it is that. But it is, how can I love my God and how can I love my brother or sister with greater faithfulness? How can I have the Word of God applied 
in my relationship to one another. Too often, we love speculation. Speculation that leads us nowhere closer to the worship of Christ. Rabbit holes that lead us away from righteous, holy paths. And as you reflect, as you submit your soul to the Word of God, as you allow the Word of God to cut away at your sin, this, you know, this, this evening, this week, as you think about your own heart, would you say that there is, to some degree, this divisive spirit that plagues you? you know, for our denomination, for our church that prizes Scripture, that prizes, that values highly doctrine and thinking, loving the Lord our God with our mind. The temptation is there to divide needlessly over some doctrinal matter. And to some degree, we must ask, can what Paul wants us to avoid be said here of us? Are we a pot stirrer for the sake of provocation and for the twisted pleasure that we would receive from division? Years ago, I was part of a church that in its recent history had, I wouldn't say a church split, but a small division over the size of a classroom. So the, the elders... And the, had, had already drafted up plans for the, the church, uh, the people to have a building. And everyone was you know, funding this, this building fund that they might one day have uh, this new building. And upon further reflection, the elders decided that they had to reduce the size of the plans, and that would affect a couple of the classrooms by a couple feet. And two or three families said that this was an indication that the elders did not care for Christian education since the education rooms were the ones to be reduced and not the other rooms. And because of this, and I'm sure there were other deeper issues really at the bottom, but because of this, they left the church over something so small as a couple or a few feet of a classroom. This is shameful, is it not? We would, so, we would major on minors. They would get all upset over small things. And we wouldn't prefer others to ourselves. What small things upset you? What petty matters plague your heart as you relate to one another? What are those things that really bother you? What are those molehills that you then use to build into a mountain? As you identify those what you're doing is you're identifying your fears, your values, where you are trying to keep control. This is all silly. It's just as silly as virtue signaling. 
through racial color. So small a matter as skin color. And yet, it is in our church as, as well. That is to say, the church at large. Beware of the spirit of division, dear ones, because it is unbecoming of the gospel of peace. Paul wants church leadership to do away with the divisive. It's what he says in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. This word, as far as the one who stirs up division, can be literally translated the heretic. As for the heretic, this word can sometimes have a, a positive or a neutral connotation, sometimes negative, of course as we understand it today. But it used to refer simply to groups, factions. Like you'd have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you'd have Christians, different factions, different groups. But here it is clearly viewed negatively. The, the one who serves up division has chosen for himself what he and all others must believe, regardless of biblical teaching on the matter. And we must then be cautious we must be very careful. Before we see what action is to be taken, we must be very careful to label people heretics. Do heretics exist? Absolutely. There are many of them. But we would do much better to label a particular statement of theirs, a belief of theirs, as heretical than to say that they are heretics, unless it is very clearly um, the evidence is pointing very clearly to them being heretics. Just because you disagree with someone doesn't mean that that person is a heretic. Just because you have even a disagreement on a theological position doesn't mean that person is a heretic. Certainly, we Presbyterians wouldn't want to call our Baptists heretics, now would we? That would be wrong. We must lead with with love and seeking to understand rather than labeling and, and then judging. But here is a, is a real heretic, Paul has in mind, a real church splitter, one who lives among a brood of vipers. The divisive one separates on matters that need not divide. Oh, to be sure, Christ said he came to divide. And he came to, to unite, according to the truth to those matters that were related to essential biblical doctrines like the Trinity, God, the gospel, the incarnation, resurrection, justification, and other very important matters. And Paul doesn't have that kind of division in mind as we've seen. Peter Orr wrote an, an article for Crossway that came out a week or two ago, and it's called How to Crush Your Pastor. It's written, the title, of course, is tongue-in-cheek. He does not want you to crush your pastor. I certainly do not want you to crush your pastor. So it's a way of, of spinning things. If you really want to wreak havoc, there are things to do. And so it's a lesson of opposites. Do the opposite of what he is, quote, advising. But I thought that some of these actions, this counsel, is actually relevant to one another relations more than just you know congregation and pastor relationship. These are very universal. 
you want to crush someone, criticize him. Criticize them. You know, everyone has his faults. Do not let them forget their faults. Consider it a service that you provide to them, a way to, you know, keep them humble. So offer those criticisms, not the constructive ones, of course, not the ones done in humility, but really let them have it. It's very similar to that this first counsel is the next is never thank him or never, never thank them. Again, focus on the foibles, focus on the weaknesses, never focus on the good or the commendable, the the excellent, the praiseworthy, the lovely. Never focus on any of those things. Never express any kind of thankfulness, any kind of gratitude. Be unreasonable. That's a third piece of counsel. Remind everyone that we all exist to serve you. So all the songs that are to be sung must be right up your alley. They must be right what your, your heart wants to sing that Lord's Day. All the ministries that are offered must minister to your heart. If it doesn't, then why do they have it? All the programs must be catered to you Fourth is treat everything as a gospel issue. Talk every issue to death because all issues are hills to die on. All issues are gospel issues. And if every issue is a gospel issue, then you can have that bold posture. Say, if you don't get on board with this, you're denying the gospel. Are you even a Christian? And, give, and the person would then have reason to separate that would be the kind of necessary division, right? Sermon length, color of the carpet, how to interpret that one text of Scripture that commentators are divided on. You know, it's all the same. Just lump every kind of disagreement in the same. It's all a gospel issue. It's all worth fighting over. The fifth, expect him or expect one another to do everything. Ignore the vow that you took to support the worship and work of the church. That's his job or her job. That's that's their job, but it, it isn't yours. Just pretend you never took that vow to begin with. Surely these call us to reflect on our attitudes, our actions from 2022, and we would do well to examine our hearts leading into the next year where we can be more thankful, where we can edify more, where we can be more reasonable where we can prefer others to ourselves and where we can serve one another as we serve the church. Paul issues a way forward for dealing with the divisive ones. He says, warn him once, then twice. Before we see the next action, we must be reminded that this is actually a gracious thing that Paul is exhorting. This is a gracious act of admonition. This is a warning that comes from love. Here we have a quickness to listen, a slowness to speak. Oh, how quickly do we pronounce judgments on people without even first hearing the person's concerns, their views, what they are actually saying. 
not what you think they're saying. We must lead with listening, inquiring rather than accusing. We would do well to lead them with love and grace, to plead with them to see the truth. Yes, there are real divisive individuals. Yes, there are real heretics. Yes, there are people who have really divergent views, and those views must be addressed. But make sure you know what those views are before you talk about them. Make sure you know that that person holds that view before proceeding further, and give that person the opportunity to respond. This is grace. This is, this is love. This is the Christian way. This is how the Lord deals with us. Again, we should be slow to speak a word of judgment. And in this way, we follow Paul as he follows Jesus in, in Matthew 18, showing a brother his sin. If you think that he has sinned, you just go to him. You just inquire. And, but there does come a time, as Paul clearly has laid out here, when the heretic or the divisive one digs in her heels. And in such a case, Paul reminds Titus that the church leaders must avoid this one. Avoid this individual like the plague, for that is what their teaching will do to the church. It'll wreak havoc on the church. Pigs do not deserve pearls, just the mud that they roll in, and do not get in that mud with them. And as a leader, Titus is to set the example for the elders in Crete. The device of one is warped, he is self-condemned, and is so put out of the church. What Paul has in mind here is the official exclusion from membership as a logical result after a warning, after speaking to him once and warning him a second time. This person is persistent in his sin and needs not be warned over and over and over. We must all be careful of what we say, whether it is to one another or on social media how we engage with one another, how we engage with other people outside of the church. We must be careful in ABF, in men's Bible study, women's Bible study, in our covenant group. We must be careful of the questions that we ask and the comments that we make. Yes, there is such a thing as a stupid question. Just because a thing pops in your head does not mean you should say it. Consider your motive for asking. Consider the reason you want to say what you want to say. Consider other people as well. Ask yourself, will this question or will this comment add confusion to this individual who has only been a believer for a year? Should I let this individual in on a great theological debate that might cause him some confusion, maybe even produce a lack of assurance? Will it be beneficial to him? And will the question, will the comment truly glorify God? Will it truly be a way to edify one another? We will benefit. We will do well to think more about how we contribute in the discussions with one another about the things of God. 
Well, instead of dividing, we see that God's people support one another and the worship of God. To support the people of God, the church needs the people of God. Verse 12 says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So here we have Artemis or Tychicus as the coming co-worker of Paul. One of them was coming to Titus. Paul didn't, at that time that he wrote this, he didn't know which he was sending or which would have been more available to go to Crete to help Titus. We don't really, don't really know anything about Artemis, except if true, later tradition has him as a bishop of Lystra. Tychicus we know a bit more of from Acts and Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. He is from the church in Asia Minor, a beloved brother, a faithful minister. He was sent to churches to encourage their hearts, that, they might, that he might be pastorally useful to them. And as we connect other texts of Scripture, likely Artemis was the one sent to Crete because Tychicus was sent to Ephesus, as we see in 2 Timothy what we see here is that Titus cannot leave Crete until his, pop, his proper replacement has arrived, which is a reminder to us that leadership changes are inevitable, and God's leaders need support. This church, Cross Creek, has had a handful of pastors in its history, and it will, Lord willing, have more. As you know, we are preparing for another not as a replacement, but as a reinforcement. The ministry of the church is much, and God's people need to support her ministers. So there's the, the coming co-worker of Paul, but also in verse 13 we see the, the going or the passing through ones, Zenos and Apollos. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Like Apollos, Zenos was a Jewish law expert, who was skillful in handling legal matters. Apollos, we know a lot more of, Jew from Alexandria, a mighty speaker of the word, the man that Luther identified as the author of Hebrews. But of course we know it was Paul. These godly men would benefit Crete, and they would then move on and be a blessing beyond but we see just through this verse that God supplies his people. He orders all of their comings and goings for his glory. Your comings and goings, your history, is a result of God's fatherly providential hand, directing all things according to the counsel of his good will. We don't know exactly all the places and the people that these men visited, nor their itineraries, but God directed every one of them, all the places, all the people, exactly where his providence would have them. We see here that the Lord supplies his people through his people. Speed them on their way. Help them along their way. Literally means provide the, the physical resources necessary for their ministry. And that means money. That means lodging. That might mean clothing. It might mean some bags, food. All of those physical needs being met. That's what 
That's what Paul's getting at here. Make sure that these men have what they need as they continue to labor heartily unto the Lord. The ministry of the church is supported by the very people of God. And we all do well then to consider how, how we are supporting one another, how we are supporting this church, the ongoing ministries of this church, and how we are supporting one another with our resources. Verse 14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Before we took a break for the Advent series, I preached the sermon on devoted to good works. So I won't re-preach that here. But it's noteworthy that Paul is saying, just right at the end, he's not, he's not, he's not afraid of speaking about good works. Although when we hear the language of works in our Protestant context, we're quick to call that legalism. No, it's, it's the Christian life. Let our people learn to do good works. Bear fruit. So Paul reminds us that it is good to remember our God-given duty to bear fruit. And so he has broadly in mind the fruit of the Spirit that every believer is to show more and more. And our good works involve meeting needs, as I mentioned. And so he applies the effect the good works have on those in urgent need. Surely, dear ones, there are needs, even pressing, pressing needs, not only always, but especially during Christmas time. Again, how might you help one another? And these works we are to be engaged in. As God's people engage in good works, they are learning through doing. That's one philosophy of education is, is get them to learn by the very act of doing. And that's not the whole story of education, but there is some truth to it. And Paul says that I have learned how to be content in every and every circumstance, in every situation, I've learned how to be content. How has he learned? Through the actual living in any and every situation. Through God providentially placing him in places of abundance or of lack. In prison, out of prison. Full stomach, empty stomach. Stoned, not stoned. Beaten, not beaten. Shipwrecked or not. God put him in all of those. And as he's doing that, Paul is being constant, constantly being reminded he is to learn how to be content. As we sang just a little bit ago, that these trials are gifts from above. Of course, we don't like to think about that. We don't like to consider trials as gifts from above, but they are God's way of helping us to depend upon him and to be engaged in good works. And Paul also said that our model is the Son. The Son learned obedience through the suffering, through living trial after trial. And so the proof is in the performance. One way to learn how to be devoted to good works is by being engaged in the doing of them. Pray that I do not feel like it would be one day, O oh Lord, I may feel like it, but only if I keep doing it, only if I keep being faithful to you. 
We develop tastes for different foods by trying them, don't we? Last couple weeks, a child of mine said, I wish I was allergic to all the foods I didn't like. (laughs) Well said, young one, well said. Of course, this individual meant she doesn't want to keep eating the food that is put before her because she doesn't like the way it tastes. And we should give our taste some time. And we should even test our tastes. After all, the baby whispers say that it takes up to, it could take up to 15 times of introducing a given food to the baby before the baby takes it and receives it well without objection. 15 times. Now, I don't know if that's just wearing down the baby's will or if the baby says, after that 15th time, yeah, I, I need those, I need that green stuff. I like it. I forced myself to enjoy black coffee. I followed the, the way of my younger brother who wanted to be a little bit healthier and didn't want to be inconvenienced to uh, other situations and say, oh, I need cream and sugar. And he wanted to taste all the different kinds of beans. And I said, okay, I'll follow that. I'll try that. And first sip, the first time he made me a cup of black coffee, took a sip, and I was like, I can't do any more than this. No, thank you. But I persisted. Let me do next time a couple sips. You know, a quarter of a cup, half a cup, three quarters cup, one time, even a full cup. And at that time, I did not enjoy black coffee. But after a couple weeks, or maybe a couple months, yes, I love the way it smells and I love the way it tastes. I'm not against all iced coffee. So don't hear me saying that you shouldn't drink iced coffee. Cream and sugar are unacceptable? No, but the point is that we, we develop a taste. We develop a taste for sin through sinning. One grievous example would be that of pornography. We develop a taste for sin through sinning, and we develop a taste for obedience through obedience. The more we desire, the more we act in faith to submit our wills to our Father's will, the more we come to delight in our Father's will. And we seek to kill the flesh by the power of the Spirit. We walk in step with the Spirit and submit our wills to the Father's word. And as we keep doing this, as we keep being engaged in good works, Do not be surprised if the Lord changes your heart. We can pray, give me the desires of your heart, O Lord. All of this is grace depending. Verse 15, the final words, grace be with you all. A gracious end to put everything in perspective, just as he had begun the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 4. Let us always remember, dear ones, that we are always depending on the grace of God for all that we do. And may God's grace be with us all as we appoint God the elders, as we seek for that associate pastor, 
as we teach and receive sound doctrine, as we men act like godly men and women act like godly women, and employees act like godly employees and children as godly children, and as we are ready for every good work, let us always depend upon the grace of God. And may God's grace be with us all that we might always hold in our breasts that hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before ages began. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Paul's letter to Titus. We thank you for the, at times, hard words and our call to follow you and at the same time, the grace that is with us in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. That we do not earn our salvation, but you have given us this as a free gift because of the costly life, death, and and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to depend upon you every moment of the day, that we might continue to live and, and seek to live in ways of greater conformity to the image of the Son, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.